Well, good morning again. Let me reiterate what a privilege it is for us to be here this morning. We are incredibly excited uh, to be worshiping with you. My name is Tyler. I've had the opportunity to meet many of you. I'm one of the pastors here, one of the elders, along with Ben and Stephen. And uh, again, we are just we are grateful for this opportunity. Ben made mention of the notes there in your bulletin. So if you turn to the next page after that final song, the lyrics, you will find some notes that have some fill in the blanks. If that's helpful for you in the absence of slides and overheads, feel free to use that. If you don't uh, find that helpful, then don't worry about it. Don't use it. We're not going to come, you know, roll your yard or something. Okay. Um, it's just for, for, for you and for uh, this to be a more profitable time, help you remember some of these things and perhaps take it with you. We've already heard this incredible text read by Laura. And it seems clear that there is one main point here, one main point of this text, and therefore one main point of our time together this morning in the text, and that is Jesus is the sovereign Lord and promised Messiah. Jesus is the sovereign Lord and promised Messiah. And in fact, this exact same point could be made from a multitude of passages in Mark's gospel, like the one just before it. But here we see the point made in a particularly astonishing fashion. So let's, it's already been read for us. So open up with me to Mark chapter 5 and let's walk through this together. So Jesus has just been on the other side of the sea, telling parables, doing ministry, and then he decides to cross over with his disciples. Now on the way, the storm arises and Jesus controls the water he controls the wind and they arrive in Gadara a Gentile region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee so he's gone from a primarily Jewish context over to a primarily Gentile context the different gospels and commentators was it the Gergesene was it the Gadarenes it doesn't really matter all of them are referring to the same thing essentially they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Immediately, that word occurs 42 times in Mark's gospel as he narrates the story of Jesus with breakneck pace. Compared to the other synoptic gospels, I believe Matthew uses the word five times and Luke once. Mark, 42 times. The picture is though Jesus has come over on the boat, his foot hits the shore, and immediately this man charges him. The tomb dweller, there in your notes, that's the next blank, the tomb dweller charges toward Jesus. Tomb dweller charges towards Jesus. More on that in one second. And then Mark gives us his typical, very vivid, raw descriptions. Listen to this. He says, this man lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain, not even with a metal chain could anyone bind this man. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And so there, right here, we get the title of our scene, scene one up at the top. Two spirit-empowered men face off. Two spirit-empowered men face off. The showdown by the sea. Very clearly supernatural strength here. 
Okay, because of the way tombs were constructed, it would have been a good place to take shelter um, if you wanted to be away from everyone. But also you see this person is doing more than that. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. He's defacing the Imago Dei, defacing the image of God as he possesses, terrifies this man. This is a terrifying man. If you saw this man, you would be terrified. This is not just a mere novel. This isn't like if you've seen The Greatest Showman, some of the, the odd-looking people in that. You're like, oh, that's interesting. No, this is terrifying. This would be a terrifying man. And verse 6 says, he saw him from afar. This is how he probably ended up there immediately. Let's read. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So that's where we get that he's charging. That's where I have that charge language. The tomb dweller charges toward Jesus. He sees him coming from a way off. He gets a head start. He's running. And so right when Jesus pulls up, Mark narrates that he, he's there. He's right there. Now I want to pause to point out something that is not at all obvious to us, but would have raised some eyebrows in first century Jewish thought. In the first century Jewish understanding of kind of cosmic geography uh, and unclean spirits, it would be very odd to hear of a spirit charging towards rapidly approaching the water, the sea, and how they put it together. Why is that? Well, because it was believed to be the wilderness or the desert that spirits were believed to inhabit and desired to be. This is a theme that we see both in the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament in terms of the Jewish understanding. For example, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, he is led where? To the riverside? No, he is led into the, into the wilderness. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 gives a little object lesson about the present evil generation, and he's fine to use this common understanding, whether he actually endorses it or not, uh, is maybe up for debate. But in Matthew 12, 43, he describes what happens when an unclean spirit goes out from someone. Remember what it says? He says that such a spirit passes through waterless places. It's a very interesting word to put in there. He passes through waterless places, and there wasn't that person that raised their hand that was like, well, why would he do that? Why would he not go to places that have everyone, everyone seemed to have understood that? In fact, in Luke's narration of this exact same story, in Luke 8, 29, it says that the spirit that was afflicting this man often drove him into the desert. You go back in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. You had a goat, you had a goat for Azazel. Azazel, who is believed to be a some kind of there's debate whether it was a particular region or whether Azazel was a goat demon, and that was that the New King James Version of the Bible translated as scapegoat. That goat that goes out into the wilderness bearing the sins of the people is the goat for Azazel. Go read it. Leviticus 16. Leviticus 17:7, God is imploring them to not make sacrifice to the goat demons in the wilderness. Okay, now all of this may sound very bizarre, and, and candidly, it is. But I'm telling you that this was the common understanding of things, particularly how it developed through Second Temple Jewish literature. I don't have any answers, but I'm just telling you that's how it would have been understood. And so, to see a spirit charging up towards the water, right to the sea, would have been an odd thing. But knowing that is pretty is helpful in understanding the fullness of the story here. Only something or someone incredibly compelling, it would seem, would cause that kind of action to flirt with such 
danger. Apparently, the water posed some kind of threat. There's a lot of there's a lot of literature on this that's very odd. I don't claim to understand it all. It's just you can go check some of this stuff out. But here's the thing: someone incredible is here, and that's the whole purpose of this story. And so this unclean, this man filled with these unclean spirits charges Jesus who's right next to the water. And the unclean spirit submits the next blank there in your notes. And with a high Christology, a high understanding of Jesus, listen to what he says. He fell down before him, end of verse 6, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So now, you're going to see that he's going to try to make some authoritative requests here. But notice, he's making the authoritative request while he's falling down before Jesus. So don't get it twisted. He's in a posture of submission, and he refers to Jesus by the highest title yet. How could it get any more? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Somehow, as you read the Gospels, the people who get who Jesus is the most is the demons. It's just it. And they shudder. And that leads to what I'm going to call a little demonic prayer request. A little demonic prayer request. He says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. What this is, is language that exorcists would use. They would generally appeal to the highest being that they knew of to call out a spirit from someone because you kind of appeal to the highest power in order to do so, but he does it for a different reason. This is actually a reverse exorcism attempt. This is a reverse exorcism attempt. And one of the ironies here is that this is language that this legion, this demon, has heard proclaimed to him probably many times as people have futilely sought to cast him out. And now what he does is he takes a little tool off the exorcist toolkit and says, ha, I adjure you by God. He's heard this before. Do not torment me. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And in verses 9 and 10, Jesus asks him to declare himself. When Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him, first instance of begging in this story. Follow the begging in this story. First instance of begging. He begged him earnestly not to send them, because it's a collective spirit. It can be a plural or a singular noun there begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. We're introduced to Legion, the demon beggar. There in your notes, the demon beggar. little compound noun there, the hyphen. We learn that there was a large herd of pigs nearby. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And in Jewish thought, hey, you had an unclean animal, had an unclean spirit. What a fit. This is a great match right right here. And amazingly, they asked, they begged him, saying, verse 12, send us to the pigs, let us enter them in the name of God. 
And amazingly, Jesus grants the prayer request. Kind of. Verse 13, he says, So he gave them permission. He acquiesces to their request. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. We have Legion, the demon beggar. We have Jesus, the demon drowner. That the original language there for the steep bank, don't think some kind of slope going down into the water and as a, you know, little jog down to the, to the bay. This isn't a pig version of, of Baywatch. This is a cliff. Uh, th- this is a cliff that would be instant death. Not a mild slope. No, no, no. This was erratic behavior. This is not normal. This was sovereignly orchestrated, unnatural activity. And that's the way, that's why I partially, why I explained what I did earlier. Because otherwise you might think this was just unclean spirit suicide or just an unclean spirit trying to harm the local economy or something like that but they wanted to remain in a living host and as a breed they don't gravitate towards the water now did jesus know that the some commentators suggested the unclean spirits would spook the swine cause them to just lose their minds and behave this way or did he drown them in a more direct supernatural way i have no idea but also it doesn't really matter Jesus, well, here's what matters. Jesus was in total control. And these spirits got way more than they asked for. Sometimes you get what you ask for plus a little bit more, and you wish you hadn't asked. Because make no mistake about it, Jesus will not be manipulated, and he does not negotiate with evil. And if it escaped your notice as we pause here, remember what immediately precedes this story. We already heard about it briefly from Laura. Jesus commanding the water and the wind. Only one time in the history of the people of God did God command the water and the wind immediately before drowning a large hostile force in the sea. The Red Sea, the Exodus. But someone greater than Moses is here. And that's Jesus, who is the sovereign Lord and the promised Messiah. So, curtain closes on Act 1, scene 1 here. Unclean spirits are gone, and we're going to see a few ironic and even tragic responses in scene 2. An ironic, tragic response. But first, let me tell you, I, I have, a, um, have a large yard, and I attempt to play golf in it. And because I'm regrettably no Tiger Woods, I'm awfully, uh, uh, frequently, excuse me, mishitting shots. And occasionally, my golf balls hit things that they aren't supposed to hit. And it gives my son, Will, no greater joy than to say, I'm telling mommy, and run off. To proclaim what has happened. Dad hit the playset with a golf ball. Um, because apparently, some things you just got to tell other folks. 
And I'm not sure hitting something with a golf ball counts as such an event, but this certainly does. And that's exactly what happened. Continue with me in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. Well, they didn't have a herd to watch over anymore, so whatever, I guess, I guess so. And people showed up. People came to see what it was that happened. And what did they find? Read with me, verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were thankful. Oh, wait. That's not what it says. That's not what my version says either. I misread that. I'm sorry. Let me try again. Clothed and in his right mind, and they were so relieved. No, it doesn't say that either. It says they were afraid. They came and saw this man clothed and in his right mind, and their response was fear. But they weren't afraid any longer of this man. They were afraid of Jesus. They had a response of fear instead of relief. That's your blank there. Fear, of, fear instead of relief or gratitude. And to whatever extent the people had already told the story, because the herdsmen went and told everyone, apparently there's a public retelling here, play-by-play, play, with Jesus and the man present to all appearances. And we have to confess, it must have been a very bizarre scene to people who are watching. I mean, you can just put, place yourself in the position of people watching, trying to tell this thing, well, there we were. We saw a boat coming. And then the crazy man that we've all seen before, man, he started running down there. We're like, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? Someone's going to die. Well, they just kind of talked, and then, and, then, and then he kind of fell down before him, and they looked at each other. It looked like they were having a conversation, and all of a sudden our pigs started getting a little anxious, and they all ran off a cliff and died. And then we came and told y'all. That's the story. Had to have been very bizarre. But when, when the story is retold there, we get the second instance of begging in the story along with this second contrast here. What is that? After they tell the story, verse 16, after those, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and how do they respond? And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The demons beg for permission to stay. The townspeople beg for Jesus to depart. Demons beg for Jesus to stay, but the townspeople beg for Jesus to depart. And it's not incredibly hard to see why. The loss that they've just experienced would be devastating. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of food. That's going to affect someone's table. That's going to affect someone's market. It's kind of like when you watch the Avengers movies, if you've seen any of those. Like they show up, like, hey, we're the good guys. And people are like, yeah, but our city's destroyed. It's like, can y'all save the world somewhere else? You know? Um, listen, we can't have that kind of volatility around here. I'm, we're glad for this guy, don't get me wrong. And in so doing, your next blank, the townspeople would rather have order and safety than an omnipotent savior. And this picture is so sad because the first time the one who's going to be a light to the nations is standing before them. A primarily Gentile crowd here. First time he's standing before an almost exclusively Gentile crowd. And the best they have is, I'm sorry, we'd rather just play it safe and not have any upheaval. upheaval man, you got to go. One theologian puts it better than I ever could. Listen to how he explains this. From a Jewish perspective, the whole scene is a joke. 
The unclean spirits and unclean animals are both wiped out in one fell swoop and a human being is cleansed. The demons had begged Jesus to let them stay in the region. Now the townspeople beg Jesus to leave the region. They're more comfortable with the evil forces that take captive human beings and destroy animals than they are the one who can expel them. They can cope with the odd demon-possessed wild man who terrorizes the neighborhood with random acts of violence, but they want to keep someone with Jesus' power at a lake's length. And that takes us down to scene three. Scene three is the third beggar. The third beggar. After being confronted immediately by this guy as he gets off the boat, look what happens. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, pause. Wait a second. He came over there, took one step out of the boat, immediately was confronted by this man. And in verse 18, Jesus heads out. No further teaching, no further miracles. Almost as if he came over here just for this. Just for this. And as he's heading out, this guy makes a petition. He makes a petition to be on Jesus' ministry team. Jesus, I want to be with you. These guys are getting in the boat and being they're with you. They're with you. I want to be with you. Listen to what he says there. The third instance of begging. As he was getting in the boat, Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. The demons beg for the ability to stay. The townspeople beg Jesus to leave. And this guy begs to be with Jesus as he goes off with his disciples. I want to be with you. These guys are getting to be with you and leave and go do all the things. I want to do that. And from our point of view, we would have said, Jesus, hey, this would be a great like PR strategy. I mean, this guy, you know, he could be the face of this thing. Look, how this, look at this transformation. But ironically, but in the best way possible, you have it in your notes there, the request is not granted. There's another path. Jesus says, verse 19, and he did not permit him. You can't be with me. But said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has showed mercy on you. Jesus says, listen, I know you want to come with me. I get it. I get it. But there is something else you need to do. Even if it doesn't feel as thrilling, go home and just tell your friends what the Lord has done for you and the kind of mercy you've been shown. After all, it's hard to argue with you know, such a transformation. And so that's exactly what the man does, verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. His deliverance proclaimed in the Decapolis. The word proclaim there, by the way, in the original language of the New Testament, is the same word for preach. He preached what Jesus has done, and Jesus told him to go and preach the mercy of God to the gent his Gentile friends. Ooh, that sounds like something else we're going to get later in the Gospels. Decapolis was a loosely connected league, for lack of a better word, of ten highly cultured Greek cities that have been very influential. And it said that everyone marveled. And again, we shouldn't miss 
that Jesus is telling this man to go proclaim to his Gentile friends what the Lord has done for him. Go preach about the mercy of God to your Gentile friends. In fact, it's caused many scholars, in the words of one particular scholar, to say, it may very well be that this is the inauguration of mission to the Gentiles. A proto-mission. Jesus has not risen from the dead. There's not a dead and risen Savior to proclaim an atonement made, but something like a proto-great a proto great commission, something like that, a foretaste of it, telling this man to go proclaim to his Gentile friends. So, so perhaps the apparently purposeless out and back across the lake wasn't so purposeless after all. And don't miss Mark's high Christology here. I love this. Mark is a narrator. Notice Jesus tells the man, go tell them how much the Lord has done for you. The Lord, the Lord has done for you. And Jesus goes and proclaims how much Jesus had done for him. Why is that? Because Jesus is the sovereign Lord and the promised Messiah. And Mark is trying to make that crystal clear. So when we encounter a text like this, we're challenged with how we encounter Jesus as the sovereign Lord and as the promised Messiah, one who is greater than Moses. And as a result, there's a multitude of things that could be said in in application. Uh, But I want to narrow it down to only two questions shaped by the examples just we see in our text today. The first question, you have it in your notes there as we talk about encountering the Messiah. Which one is greater in our lives? Fear of the Lord, it's your blank, or fear of anything else? It's interesting here that in this story we see a couple kinds of fear for a couple different kinds of reasons. The one who comes the closest to fearing the Lord in the New Testament and old, well, both senses of the word is, is this man who's been liberated but the fear of the Lord is this loaded term in the Bible. Uh, it, doesn't necess- it doesn't mean that we are terrified of God, like someone who's going to kill us or murder us, nor does it mean just to respect. as a respectable God, just reverence. Let me give you the best illustration that I know of to, illust- to, to try to bring these, what is admittedly kind of a complex idea together. I remember the first time, and, and perhaps you do too, you were asked to hold a newborn baby. And um, I won't speak for you. I'll just narrate my version. They were like, do you want to hold this newborn baby? And I was like, uh, yeah. And so as someone who's, you know, you know, fairly coordinated, who exercises quite a bit, I was like, uh, what if I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm head support. Got to have head support. And then there's the transfer, the perilous transfer. However you, you know. The transfer is always so perilous feeling. And I have this baby here in my arms. And what I want to suggest is something like that is analogous to the fear of the Lord. Here's why. It's because I have a controlling anxiety for one particular thing. Someone who bumps into me is a threat in that moment. Something that distracts me is a threat. I'm not terrified of the baby but I am truly afraid of mishandling this. I'm afraid of the consequences of encountering this the wrong way. Truly scared, truly terrified. And so I I am concerned for this right here. 
It, it is the only thing, really, that matters to me in that moment in the overarching scheme of things. I am focused in. It is controlling me. Maybe I'm a little bit, at least for me, if you're one of these moms who's done it forever, maybe not. But for me, I'm like, uh, okay, I can give, you know, give them back now. Okay? When I say fear of the Lord, I mean something, and sometimes the word fear in the Hebrew is translated in anxiety. I mean something like a controlling concern for, an anxiety or striving toward something or away from something. When you really peel the onion of your soul, what thoughts and longings uh, occupy your heart? Do you deeply respect enough to give them real estate in your own soul? Which, one of, which of them kind of grab your heart and make you anxious to either achieve or, or, or avoid What's always the constant concern, perhaps, in the back of your mind? In biblical terms, what do you tend to fear instead of God? Okay. And sometimes it may actually be being terrified. What do you have a controlling concern for that exercises an inescapable influence on the conversations that you have and how you live life? Is it concern for over, rather, not concern for, but concern over sickness or death. Or you, perhaps you're in a stage where you say, listen, this dominates my thought life. I'm not, I don't just have a healthy concern for my own health like anyone does. This occupies too much, so much real estate in my thought life. I find myself always, always dwelling on this and doing everything I can. What about, maybe it's financial stability or instability. Maybe you have the middle class version of that. It's not, I want to be a millionaire, so I just want to be comfortable. I'm just going to run after comfort. It sounds so much better. Certainly not a bad thing to desire, just to be clear, but the problem isn't desiring it. It's when that occupies a controlling concern in your life and you start to fear it. It becomes your master rather than Jesus. Is it maybe if you're single, maybe it's a desire for a spouse. You just... Every, every, I remember this actually as a, as a single man. Every conversation was a woman was potential. Most of it that was quickly squelched by me. Do you have a controlling concern or anxiety for this when you're alone? You're thinking, well, what if I'm like this forever? What if there's no one? I'm going to do anything I can, my longings, my desires. What about the desire to be thought of well by other people? The scripture calls this the fear of man. I want to be that mom. When I step in here, everyone thinks I'm the omnicompetent do-it-all mom. Oh, I want to be this man who will walk in there in church and everyone thinks, oh, he's so solid. Oh, he's so solid. Oh, we want to be this family where people are like, oh, look at all their kids and they're all, you know, behaving and all the rest. We want to be like them. We just really want people to think so highly of us. We want people to think so highly of us. Maybe you're like these village people who just fear the unknown. You just, if you're honest, you just prefer to be comfortable and status quo. You're much more motivated by the fear of loss than the prospect of gain. Play it safe is your life motto. And so you do anything to alleviate that fear resulting in a life that's most likely, if I had to guess, without knowing you, riddled with anxiety. 
We all tend to pledge our respect and our desire to things other than the Lord, and when we encounter the sovereign Lord and promised Messiah, we have an opportunity to just ask ourselves candid questions. And you can either do that this morning or you can just not do that. What do you tend to fear? What tends to functionally rule your heart other than Jesus? The second thing we can ask, are we content, this is the second point there in your notes, are we content with joining Jesus on mission in ways that don't feel thrilling or fit our preferred picture of service to God? Or are we content with joining Jesus on mission in ways that don't feel thrilling or fit our preferred picture of service to God? Think how much more exciting it would have been to jump on the boat with Jesus. That was his service plan. That's how he wanted to serve the Lord. And hey, who could blame him? I would, I would have too, hopefully. We don't have an opportunity to jump in a boat with Jesus. But there is more, just because there's more people now, I guess more need than ever. And there are more organizations and opportunities and all the rest to try to meet those needs than ever before at every turn. And us as pastors, we've talked about this. There is the ever-present danger of not only people exhausting themselves with every cause and every opportunity and the person who's talking about sexual trafficking, oh, we've got to help. And the person talking about racial justice, oh, we've got to help. And with this, we've got people with the tsunami, we've got to help. And this over here, this is the Crisis Pregnancy Center, oh, we've got to help. And this over here is the Project Connect Nashville and Helping Sustainable Property Relief, oh, we've got to help. And, and, you, and what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to commit your life to an endless series of, of just trying to pursue different causes. You exhaust yourself. It's not sustainable. It's a pastoral concern. But here's another one. There's the ever-present danger of seeking out a feeling of satisfaction with coming, with, with coming on mission, being on mission with Jesus in ways that feel more edgy or a little bit more radical, more out of the box. And it can, if you're not careful, provide a self-manufactured sense of worth and value that is based on effort and or perceived effectiveness. And that draw, that, that pull on your heart will, will court you. And if you are not very careful, it's not necessarily bad, but if you're not very careful in how you think about it and pursue it, you will find out that you are actually on mission for yourself. In very biblical wrapping paper, on mission for yourself, a mission of self-fulfillment. Listen to how one woman's zealous perspective shifted here. It's a popular, well, not so popular, but a very fantastic author. She says, I still think I can make a difference after a life of doing all this radical stuff. Crazy story. Great story, but crazy. I still think I can make a difference just beyond my own door. I will still want to live radically for Jesus and be part of him changing the world. I still think mediocrity is dull and I still fret about settling, but I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. And so this is what I need now. The courage to face an ordinary day. Excuse me, I messed up my very bad timing for a finger slip. So this is what I need now. The courage to face an ordinary day. An afternoon with a colicky baby 
where I'm probably going to snap at my two-year-old and get annoyed with my noisy neighbor. Without despair, the bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life. And the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me, and that is enough. So if you think the guys who got back on the boat with Jesus were more radical than the guy who was told by Jesus to go talk to his friends, you need to readjust your thinking. This is not an excuse to not go out of your comfort zone because the truth is there's a lot of people who would find it much, 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 much easier to go serve, 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 serve than go talk to their friends about Jesus. This is not an excuse to say don't get out of your comfort zone. It's a call not to fix, fix your eyes on a particular feeling in the pursuit of faithfulness. I promise that you have had effects in your life and your ministry to other people that you have no idea about. And there was, we heard about one of those in the Sunday school this morning. Are we content with joining Jesus on mission in ways that do not seem quite as thrilling or that are not quite in line with our pattern of service? Jesus is a sovereign Lord and the promised Messiah. That much is beyond clear. He gets to determine, beyond doubt, uh, that, that is to say, he gets to determine what counts as radical, what counts as faithful, and so the only question remains is that if we have truly encountered Jesus, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? Have you encountered Jesus? You've heard Jesus proclaimed, perhaps? Have you met the person Jesus? Or have you just heard about Jesus? Perhaps you need to encounter Jesus, the man, the God-man. Repent. Turn from your sin. Perhaps you've already encountered Jesus and you have questions to ask yourself about what you fear or how you're serving with Jesus on mission Whatever the case may be, as we consider the question, may we do so honestly, candidly, and we pray for this kind of mercy uh, in our own lives as we consider these things. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that we have been given eyes to see, that you have softened our sin-hardened hearts. God, we pray that we would have the courage just to tell our friends about Jesus. We pray that we would have the courage and the perspective to realize that when we feel insignificant that we're not. We pray that we also have the boldness to look at scripture and what it would call us to do with our lives as we take up a cross and follow you. Help us be these witnesses. Help us be a light to the nation because the light to the nations has risen from the dead. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.